This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future by James Bridle. As the world around us increases in technological complexity, our understanding of it diminishes. Underlying this trend is a single idea, the belief that our existence is understandable through computation, and that more data is enough to help us build a better world. In reality, we are lost in a sea of information, increasingly divided by fundamentalism, simplistic narratives, conspiracy theories, and post-factual politics. Meanwhile, those in power use our lack of understanding to further their own interests. Despite the apparent accessibility of information, we're living in a new dark age, from rogue financial systems to shopping algorithms, from artificial intelligence to state secrecy. We no longer understand how our world is governed or presented to us. The media is filled with unverifiable speculation, much of it generated by anonymous software while companies dominate their employees through surveillance and the threat of automation. In his brilliant new work, leading artist and writer James Bridle surveys the history of art, technology, and information systems, and reveals the dark clouds that gather over our dreams of the digital sublime. New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future, by James Bridle, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week, I have two episodes on the climate crisis. On Friday, I'll be posting my interview with Elizabeth Rush, the author of the book Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Today's episode, the first of the two, is a live event that I hosted at Verso Books in New York a few weeks ago, or at least part of it is. The event live stream, which we grabbed the audio from, malfunctioned for the first half hour or so. And so, dear listeners, I made lemonade out of audiovisual lemons and redid the first part of the interview a few days later over the phone from my studio. And truth be told, take two was even better. So a bit into the interview, you will suddenly be transported from my studio in Providence to Brooklyn, where we addressed a big crowd on the subject of how the left should think about, frame, and act to fight climate change in Verso's sweltering summertime and thus thematically very much on brand office. My four guests, more than I've ever interviewed at one time before, are as follows. Audrey Lim, a Brooklyn-based journalist who has written for The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, The New Republic, and The Nation, and who also edits for Verso. Thierio Francos, a professor of political science at Providence College who researches resource extraction, radical democracy, social movements, and the left in Latin America, and who has written for N Plus One, Jacobin, NACLA, and Dissent. She also serves as co-chair of Providence Democratic Socialists of America. Ashley Dawson, a professor of English at CUNY Graduate Center and the College of Staten Island, who is the author of two recent books on topics related to the environmental humanities, Extreme Cities, 
The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change from Verso, and Extinction, A Radical History from OR. He is also a longtime member of the Social Text Collective and founder of the CUNY Climate Action Lab, and Daniel Adana Cohen, a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Carbon Collaborative, or SC2. He has contributed to Jacobin, Descent, and other publications. Before we get rolling, this show is only possible thanks to the more than 1,100 listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Please, join them. Contribute $5 a month, and you get a copy of my newsletter. $10 a month, and I'll send you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I have a bunch of gray left-wing books to send you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and real quick, I wanted to introduce you to Logan Dreer, the dig's new communications coordinator. She will be managing some of our administration so that I can work less punishing hours. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, right now I'm mostly a student. I'm in going into my senior year at Brown University, where I've been studying environmental science, mostly focusing on environmental justice. And I don't know what else. I do a lot of stuff on campus, particularly around environmental justice stuff, gender justice, teaching. And how is it that you first got attracted to the political left? So the 2016 election was actually the first election I'd ever voted in um, because I'm only 20. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that being the first time I was ever politically engaged told me that there was something deeply wrong with the way that our politics were going in the U.S. Um, And that got me really interested in doing more sort of my own research and especially studying environmental stuff at Brown, I kind of started to realize maybe there's something wrong with this capitalism thing Um, and kind of stumbled into the online leftist world, which led me to the dig. I'm very glad to have you helping me. I'm already sleeping more. (laughs) Yeah, I'm super excited to help. Okay, here's my beautiful Frankenstein's monster of two interviews made into one seamless whole with Audrey Lim. Thea Riofrancos, Ashley Dawson, and Daniel Adana Cohen. Ashley Dawson, Audrey Lim, Daniel Adana Cohen, and Thea Riofrancos, welcome to the dig. Thank you. Thanks so Thanks. much. It's Thank great you. to be here. It's uh, We had such a good conversation that we decided to have it again, and I'm sure it'll be even better this time. Uh, it's often remarked that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And today, now that it seems so very much like the world is actually going to end, that this axiom has become more frighteningly poignant than it ever has been before. And so my first question for everyone is, can we stop the world from ending without also ending capitalism? 
Um, so I just want to note at the outset that I think one of the reasons this feels like a dilemma is because this question is so often posed in sequential kind of stepwise terms. So one argument goes that given how deeply connected uh, the history of fossil fuel uses and the history of capitalism is, um, we can only transition to a renewable energy system if we eradicate capitalism. So we have socialism first and then a, a transition to renewable energy. Um, another kind of opposing argument goes that we should do whatever we can in the present while capitalism is still around uh, to implement renewable energy and more efficient resource use and kind of defer the question of system change to the future. Um, and I kind of, I think one way of kind of cutting through this dilemma is not really seeing it as a check chicken and egg problem of which of these huge transitions we embark on first, um, but rather seeing them as tied together as the same process of struggle and transformation. Um, so one thing that I think we'll talk about a bit later is, um, or one way to view this is to look at the energy system, for example, as a sector that we need to decarbonize, but also as a sector that we need to democratize and decommodify. So kind of looking at the energy sector as a site of both kind of social justice, economic justice, and environmental justice struggle. Um, and just kind of emphasizing again that the process of, of system change and a just transition, I would see as sort of two sides of the same coin of, of a kind of long durée struggle um, that we're engaged in um, starting now. That's a really great intervention, Thea, and I want to build on that and maybe um, even try to add another formulation, which is that in the long term, capitalism uh, and you know, surviving on this planet are clearly not sustainable. Um, there's a question about whether, in theory, capitalism could decarbonize. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. But if you look more broadly at you know, a sixth extinction, uh, very widespread plastic pollution, soil exhaustion, uh, any other number of ecological um, pressures, catastrophes, and so on, you see that in the long run, the capitalist system of kind of endless growth and accumulation of power, uh, you know, with the very few who consume a huge amount, uh, that just can't last. Uh, but in the short term, it is certainly possible within the framework of capitalism to very aggressively slash carbon emissions and at the same time to reduce economic and racial inequalities. I think the challenge um, for the left and for eco-socialism is to not imitate the social democratic maneuver after the Second World War, which is to save capitalism by reducing inequalities and kind of re-rationalizing the system. The question I think we need to figure out today, what are the sort of immediate short-term things that we can do to address the climate crisis? And how do we do them in a way that is not about saving and restoring capitalism, but rather um, setting the path to transcending the market uh, economy and the, the capitalist economy as we know it? And so thinking in terms of what are different models for jobs and employment what is a way to decommodify energy? What is a way to take uh, housing uh, off the off the market? That sort of thing. Um, so the question of like capitalism and climate and then compatibility can be very paralyzing and can can make it feel kind of hopeless. But I think in the long term that is correct. But in the short term, there's a huge amount we can do. And as socialists, there's a lot we can do to address the climate crisis, address inequality without saving capitalism. And that's where I would hope we could go. Thanks, Daniel. I very much agree with what Thea and Daniel have said. There is no green capitalist exit from the climate crisis. 
but that doesn't mean that we should think about how to do things in the present in particular sectors um, in a way that can be transformational before we actually get to some future eco-socialist state. Um, and as Thea mentioned, I think the energy sector is particularly important to look at. We know we need to keep uh, the oil in the soil and the coal in the ground, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so in relation to that particular element of contemporary capitalist um, economies, I think we need to really make sure that we're quite critical of the kind of market logic which has dominated uh, arguments about the climate crisis for, for the last few decades, right? You know, we've had decades of arguments about how we can make the transition through carbon markets and similar kinds of market-oriented mechanisms. And today, in terms of energy transition, we see that all the time, right? We hear these arguments that renewable energy is increasing very, very quickly. And then we'll, all we need to do is really sit back and let solar power um, come into place and that we won't have to actually engage in any kind of social struggles for energy transformation. Um, and that's just objectively not the case. Uh, So-called modern renewables like solar and wind power are only about 5% of global energy sources. So we're manifestly not making the transition quickly enough and the market and the capitalist system is not making it quickly enough. That's why it's so important to begin thinking about the kinds of different models that Thea and Daniel mentioned. And, and of course, this uh, really foundationally includes having public democratic control of energy systems as well as all the other kind of related areas that we need to transform, such as transportation. So I think the only thing I'll add to that is that, you know, socialism does provide a better framework for us to think about how to organize our society and like manage our lands more equitably and in a more sustainable way than capitalism. But socialism is not at all necessarily going to save the planet. I think we only have to look at, you know, regimes like Venezuela's, you know, socialist petrostate to know that a socialist regime can also be built on extensive fossil fuel extraction. So we really have to be thinking about how to forge a new kind of eco-socialist society. My next question is about the scope of the political transformation of what that eco-socialist society will require us if we intend to actually build it. I also want to ask whether this is a more narrowly political challenge or a technological one as well. Uh, Adria, you've written that the extent of the expropriation of fossil capital that will be necessary would be greater than that effectuated by the abolition of slavery in the United States. And Ashley, you've written that's what that what's required is greater than the Allied mobilization for World War II. Adria, do you want to lay out a little bit of the scope of, of the actual material and political transformation that has to take place if we're going to survive in any sort of just future? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we've probably never as a species dealt with anything this truly global or like all-encompassing or big, um, which really means that we have to pressure our federal government or the American federal government, especially to like act quickly and decisively to just halt fossil fuel extraction and initiate a full scale renewable energy transition, something along the lines of a Green New Deal or something. Um, and, you know, because the U.S. is the world's top 
oil producer and among the biggest emitters of carbon, you know, especially per person, per capita, given its overall size. I mean, this would go a long way slowing the rate of climate change globally. I think it's also important when we think about the scale of this, the transformation that needs to happen. You know, it it can feel debilitating to think about how we need to all get together and act globally all at once and make this happen on such a uh, on such a large scale. And so I think this really needs to happen alongside local action and organizing on everything from, you know, like blocking pipelines or LNG port that liquefied natural gas ports or like refineries. And, you know, these overwhelmingly appear on indigenous lands or, you know, in poor brown and black neighborhoods. It needs to happen alongside setting up more sustainable farms that also have more equitable uh, labor practices and land ownership structures, for instance, or setting up community solar projects in like poor urban neighborhoods in a way that it actually cuts costs for residents and actually improves their lives, doesn't wind up pushing them out of their homes. The reason I think this is really important to bring up and that this these kinds of local projects are really important is that they're not only actually helping us to you know usher in the renewable energy transition one neighborhood at a time, but they also help us to build a climate movement that actually is global and is bigger and more inclusive and that like doesn't leave uh, the most vulnerable communities behind. You know, it's just important that these projects can help us, help the rest of us to imagine a different way of like living and working and managing our lands and living with the land and like meeting our own basic needs for energy or food or like recreation. Thanks, Audrey. Ashley? Yeah, Dan, thanks for your question. Um, Questions of scope and also the kind of technological versus the political dynamic are are hugely important, and particularly in the area that we've uh, really opened up, which has to do with energy transition, um, the key kind of area. So I'll I'll talk about scope quickly and then about your second uh, second part of your question. Um, So in terms of scope, yeah, the challenge we face is truly huge. You know, we need to decarbonize our energy systems. Um, as we've already noted, um, and that involves making sure that energy production um, is coming from renewable sources. But we also need to completely decarbonize transportation and the heating and cooling of buildings. Um, those are some of the most important areas. You know, there are other areas like agriculture that also produce emissions, but those are the principal areas uh, that create carbon emissions. Um, and what that means is that while we are decarbonizing those things, we need to make sure that it's all coming from renewable energy. So we need to basically generate three times as much renewable energy as we're currently generating. We need to electrify everything, including, for instance, transportation, which right now is based on fossil fuels, and the heating and cooling of buildings, which, again, based on fossil fuels. So how do we not only decarbonize energy, but also triple the amount of energy being generated? That's a a hugely big technological challenge. Um, And it gets even more sticky and complicated and hard when you think about the fact that most of the modern renewables, like solar and wind, are variable. In other words, it doesn't always um, uh, blow, the wind doesn't always blow, uh, and the sun doesn't always shine. Uh, And what that implies is that you have to have backup systems for renewable energy. Um, And at the moment, most of that backup is uh, in the form of natural gas plants that can fire up 
quickly or worst case scenario, coal plants that can also produce energy that's reliable quickly. So getting to 100% renewable is a big technological challenge. Um, and uh, tripling the amount that we generate is also a huge uh, problem. And we need to think very carefully about those kinds of questions and have really genuine plans. You know, we, we can't just be talking in kind of abstract ideas about 100% renewable. And I think there's a bit of a problem on the left with uh, fighting for this goal, which is a hugely important one, while not really going into the weeds of the, the technology. Um, but all of this also brings us back to your the second part of your initial question, sort of technology versus politics. Um, and I, I think that's a really important question to ask because most of the current battles for renewable energy, for 100% renewable energy, imagine that we're fighting to keep the amount of energy production going that we have today. In other words, it kind of assumes that we're going to keep the mass consumption society based on urban sprawl and individualized transportation that we have today. And I think that uh, a left position on um, energy transition really needs to question those things, um, not only because of the technological challenges of generating enough energy to keep all of this going, but also because of the ways in which, uh, you know, the society that has been produced by the automobile highway suburb sprawl complex in the U.S. has always been exclusionary and is very alienating. And uh, I think we can fight for something that's better for everybody and imagine better alternatives in the U.S. and, of course, in the global south, which uh, much of which needs to have um, renewable energy brought to it. It's been exclusionary. It's been carbon intensive. And the, the built environment has also ended up being politically constitutive of, of right wing power in this country. So there are I think that's another example of how none of these things can really be tackled in an isolated way. Uh, Daniel. That's exactly right. And let me, let me come back to that in a second or sort of build toward it. I want to, I mean, echo what Ajia and, and Ashley said. I think it's helpful to throw some numbers out um, in terms of the scope of what's required. The biggest spender on global infrastructure right now uh, is probably China in terms of big, ambitious projects. Um, it's got this massively ambitious One Belt, One Road initiative to link up most of the world's countries uh, with Chinese trade. Um, and the budget for that is something in the order of $900 billion per year. If you look at what the World Economic Forum is saying about the infrastructure spending necessary globally to, um, you know, on the one hand, sort of sustain economic growth, which is something we might be dubious about, but also to kind of combat climate change, the figure they throw out is $5 trillion uh, per year till around 2030 in infrastructure spending. So what we're talking about in terms of infrastructural changes to build a new built environment that could be, you know, ultimately zero carbon and, uh, you know, resilient to, to climate catastrophes is far, what, what's required is far, far greater than even what China is looking at in terms of its own global infrastructure build out. So we need to leverage vast amount of resources um, to decarbonize and to prepare for climate change. Um, but I want to note that this is a very, very different way of thinking than the common framework we've had for climate change, which for 20, 30, 40 years has been, how do we manage sacrifice? How do we manage doing less, having less, spending less? But in the short term, the question is actually, how do we, you know, who's going to pay and who's going to control the investment um, for transforming the built environment of the world? Um, that's the kind of conversation that the left really needs to be a part of. And we need to think about much more democratic um, and much more equitable, equal 
ways of, of investing vast sums of money. And as exactly as you just said, Dan, um, the built environment is completely constitutive of social relationships. We need to be uh, really steering the way that the built environment is, is rebuilt. And I, I guess that would just link me to say something very briefly about this issue of technological or political. I think, unfortunately, this is one of the like many dichotomies that the left is dragging around, like balls and chains from the 19th and 20th centuries, um, <laughs> like big versus small, technological versus political, um, or even more technology versus you know no, no, less technology or something like that. The fact is that the technological and political are the same. Um, you know, Ashley Lee and, and Thea have, uh, you know, earlier have alluded to things like you know microgrids, uh, renewable energy landscapes, um, you know, dense, uh, totally affordable, low-carbon cities. All these things require actually that the left get into the weeds, uh, of policy detail, of technical detail, and there's no version of kind of technological rearrangement that isn't already political. And there's no meaningful political intervention that doesn't involve a really sophisticated uh, grasp of and kind of intervention into technological change. So I think when we realize, like, you know, our old friend Carl says that capital is a social relation, well, so too technology is a social relation. And I would kind of implore um, my friends on the left, including the eco-socialist left, to pay much more attention to the kind of cutting edge advances of, of technology that green capitalism is making and to see this is the terrain where we need to actually fight to ensure that the built environment is is kind of redone and transformed in a way um, that you know smashes racial and economic hierarchies. I want to talk about how to think about and, and frame the climate crisis. Uh, Audrea, you've written that we're stuck between these two very unhelpful poles. On the one hand, there's this apocalyptic fatalism. The world's definitely going to end, so why bother? And then the other, there's this pervasive inertia that you write is in fact a far greater threat than the fossil fuel industry funded denialism that has come to pervade the Republican Party. My questions are, where does this fatalism come from? And and finally, a related question is, is this sense of this of crisis that seems to, to fuel apocalyptic fatalism that's definitionally unhelpful, is the sense of crisis something that can also be, be mobilizing or it, does it inherently tend to be demobilizing? There are two things you put on the table. One is, you know, how does the sort of sense of the hopelessness at all affect us? And then, you know, what, what impact does crisis or the urgency of crisis have? I think in a way they're, they're related, but I want to pose one way of thinking about the relationship, which is that a lot of people who have worked on climate for a long time, people like Al Gore, climate scientists, and so on, see weather disasters as kind of like our last best hope to sort of knock people out of their apathy and to kind of encourage um, action. Now, I've actually you know, studied this in my research on a couple of cases, uh, New York and Sao Paulo, the you know, Hurricane Sandy in New York and the drought in Sao Paulo. And looking at those has convinced me that actually extreme weather can be very dangerous for our movement. Not because it reinforces apathy, but because it reinforces a defensive logic of kind of building a fort around the, the particular location. It, it's a logic where environmentalists and housing rights and unions and other kind of uh, social justice and even socialist groups can get together and all agree on short-term uh, defensive action and sometimes foreclosing the broader conversation on how to decarbonize. Um, we have seen some of that uh, you know, broader linkage to, to decarbonization 
for instance, in New York City with the People's Climate March, you know, a little bit after Sandy, it's really thanks to sustained uh, left organizing that builds coalitions and that finds concrete opportunities to slash carbon emissions and reduce inequality at the same time. And in New York uh, City, the example, you know, we, the best example of that is probably reducing uh, building emissions through, through energy retrofits to create local jobs. And then in New York State, of a form of carbon pricing that would distribute some of the revenue to, to lower income New Yorkers and some of the revenue to investing in resiliency and, and clean energy. Um, okay, so all that to say that I think uh, in the abstract, yes, climate change is really terrifying and it does push people towards uh, paralysis. The alternative has to be some combination of a compelling story of hope and it has to be tied to very concrete things that can be done in the immediate term. I think it's been so unhelpful to be batting around in the climate discussion how soon you know, we get to zero carbon, whether it's 2050 or 2080, or what the targets are for something like 2030. I think the way that we can redirect the conversation in, in something that's pragmatic and feasible is thinking more in terms of like 2020, 2025, and seeing inequality not as something that has to be balanced as a priority against decarbonization, but what are very concrete measures that can attack inequality and attack carbon right now um, in the next five years. So, I guess I'm kind of pitching a sort of short-term radical pragmatism as an antidote to the really big picture thinking, just because I think it's only in the short-term radical pragmatism that you can actually um, give a, a sort of tangible sense of what has to be done. And it's only once you get a little bit of success and start to build that snowball that you actually gain the confidence to be able to tackle the problem in, in the longer term. So I don't, I mean, there's no substitute for morale and for confidence um, in kind of organizing or in, every, in everyday personal life. And so I would sort of focus on social and political measures that build up that morale, build up that confidence in tackling climate change as a thing that we on the left should focus much more on, much more than we are uh, right now. Thea, thoughts on how to think about climate change? Yeah, I'm going to attack this a little bit more specifically in regards to the energy sector, but I think it dovetails with some things that Daniel just said. So one of the challenges with mobilizing and political organizing from a grassroots perspective, at least, um, around the energy sector is how depoliticized it's been as a realm of policymaking in the U.S., how kind of shrouded in technocracy and bureaucracy and maybe even more importantly um, characterized by kind of regulatory capture by fossil capital. Um, so in a way, it's, it's not depoliticized. It's a very politically um, organized sector, but it's it hasn't been the site of kind of grassroots organizing um, uh, with some exceptions um, in the US. Uh, and, and some of this I think is linked to how much um, our ideas of our energy are connected to ideas of individual mobility and economic security um, uh, and, and not really a, a place where um, broad movements uh, take place and get organized. Um, but um, I think that, you know, sort of first and foremost, what socialists should be thinking about right now is ways to expose how the grid is already a site of kind of political and the concentration of political and economic power and to politicize it from below. Um, I think very concretely along the lines that Daniel was saying in the sort of very near term, um, how our local and very material inequalities um, baked into energy systems, um, how can we expose and organize around those? 
um, both in terms of the affordability questions of energy and notions of kind of fuel poverty um, and people that just can't afford uh, uh, adequate energy to survive. Um, and also um, questions that, that Audrey brought up earlier in terms of environment, um, environmental and racial justice, where energy facilities are being cited, how those overlap with other forms of marginalization. Um, and again, relating back to Daniel's point about vision, how we might use um, politicizing the grid as a platform to think more broadly about our energy systems, about who controls um, energy production and economic production um, itself. Yeah, Dan, I would answer your question about fatalism by saying that it's actually quite endemic to the environmental movement. Um, I mean, no one's so far mentioned the Nathaniel Rich article, um, the notorious one in the New York Times magazine, where he sort of ascribed the failure to deal with climate change back in the 1980s uh, to some kind of innate capacity of human, incapacity of human beings to, to plan and take rational action. And obviously he's been thoroughly trounced by um, folks like Naomi Klein for ignoring the fact that um, neoliberal capitalism was on the ascendancy right at the moment when possibilities for, uh, or in the, the urgent need for coping with climate change was becoming apparent to everyone and not factoring that in. But I, I think it's also important to remember that the environmental movement uh, in its modern guise is the inheritor of much longer kind of intellectual history of um, pessimism. You know, the whole idea of kind of conservation is um, inherent on the idea of some lost Eden that we're struggling to get back to or to stop people from um, chipping away at the remnants of. Um, and of course, that idea is profoundly fatalistic and pessimistic, and it's also highly racist. You know, the idea of wilderness conservation uh, in the United States, for instance, uh, relied on uh, pushing native peoples off the lands that they in fact had been conserving pretty successfully in order to create places like Yosemite. So I think we really need to understand the intellectual lineage of that fatalism and to understand how thoroughly penetrated with kind of racism it is and fight against that. And also think about alternative lineages and the ones that um, both Daniel and Thea have been alluding to um, environmental justice struggles and climate justice struggles, I think are an important alternative lineage. And that's one that's really grounded in um, thinking about the ways in which um, climate struggle is grounded in systemic inequalities. So that while we might want to think about hope as uh, some kind of um, set of va values that we want to look for in the present. I also think we need to think about anger and um, militancy uh, of the kind that Franz Fanon talked about as an essential uh, ingredient of anti-colonial struggle. And I think we need to think about the struggle for environmental justice and climate justice as a kind of inheritor and current example of these struggles for decolonization and uh, justice. Thanks, Ashley. Adria? Yeah, I think this um, issue that, like, Ashley brings up about how, yeah, we need to spend more time thinking about, like, alternative lineages to the environmental movement um, and also really alternative futures um, for human society. Um, I think it's one of the most important things that we need to do. I think one of the hardest parts about imagining a different kind of world at the root of uh, denialism or this feeling that we're, we've reached like the end of the world. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes that 
most difficult is that, you know, for the last couple of decades, neoliberal thinkers and politicians and corporations and all of their friends in media and communications and like the culture world, they've all been like pushing uh, neoliberal ideology into every aspect of our lives. And, you know, they've been so successful that neoliberal ideas, especially the idea of individualism as the thing that drives history and um, our our economy and it's the solution to all of our problems. This idea now frames how we view every part of our lives from like our romantic relationships to our work or what we choose to do for recreation or, you know, like how we try to make ourselves seem more interesting by buying artisanal products and then posting photos of them on Instagram, for instance. They've been so successful at this. It's been really hard to think about different ways of living, it feels kind of impossible. And I think that's the kind of thing that leads to the sort of narrative, like the one that Nathaniel Rich had in uh, the New York Times. I think the other big piece of this is that the left and the climate movement, as it exists right now, hasn't done a really good job so far of presenting a narrative about alternative ways of living or organizing society that might appeal to people who haven't already read Marx or or a story that can offer a real picture of how a more collectively-minded society would actually not only reduce carbon emissions, but also make life better and more enjoyable for people who can, like, barely pay their rent or electricity bills or, you know, have elderly parents to care for or are worried about getting deported or about their kids getting shot or going to prison or something. I think we just haven't really been putting enough effort or thought into, you know, presenting this alternative. And on the issue of can crisis, can crisis be mobilizing? Um, I think it's important to not just emphasize that this is an ecological crisis, uh, which it very much is, at least for me, like so global and geological (laughs) that even I kind of get tripped up when I think about it. Um, So I think it's important to emphasize that this is also an economic and a political crisis where uh, that climate change is showing us that our economic system is like no longer sustainable and that this is a political crisis because as Thea just mentioned, like our political system has been geared towards corporations making a profit. And pipeline corporations have, you know, the ability to sway politicians at every level of government from city or town governments to the federal, you know, over the concerns of voters and residents. One major issue, it seems, is is scale. We've never experienced a threat that is this pervasively global aside from that posed by nuclear war and The nuclear threat was and is, by comparison, just an apocalyptic possibility or, at worst, an apocalyptic probability, whereas global warming often seems like this apocalyptic certainty. And one way out of it, it seems, is to think about and frame the climate crisis at different and more tangible scales. this, This notion that we've been discussing and critiquing that that uh, that crisis is inherently demobilizing because it inevitably leads to fatalism. It, it seems like it's sort of reflects an affluent view from nowhere because, uh, as as Audrey just pointed out, there 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 is a crisis. It's happening in an interconnected way at multiple scales, and so people don't respond fatalistically in struggles that they feel 
like their survival is directly implicated in. My question is, should we think about and frame the climate crisis on, on, on variable and interconnected scales? And how do we do that? And do you think it would make the, the crisis more thinkable and thus easier to act upon and easier to build coalitions around fighting over? So throughout the Americas, um, uh, from Canada to the southern cone of Latin America, um, over the past couple decades, there's been a big uptick in very militant, um, place-based anti-mining and anti-fossil fuel activism. Um, And this has, um, there's a variety of causes for this, though, and, and one thing I'll mention off the bat and kind of related to your question, Dan, is that we see that this activism is the most militant and vibrant where those fossil fuel um, uh, projects or, or related infrastructure like pipelines um, or mining projects directly threaten people's livelihoods um, and directly threaten, um, in some cases, or in many cases, I should say, indigenous territory. Um, so this has been one of the most um, interesting forms of climate activism um, in the Americas and has helped contribute to stalling or in some cases completely obstructing projects that if they came to fruition um, would um, uh be disastrous both locally but also globally. So I think it's a way um, to think about the connection of the very local and uneven um, territorialized impacts of of the fossil economy, um, but also how those are always connected to planetary survival and planetary uh, well-being. Um, I think one of the challenges has been um, how those localized struggles um, by specific communities and specific territories can get not only connected to one another, which is uh, a concept that uh, Naomi Klein refers to as blockadia, sort of this horizontal um, coalition between different communities um, that are that are affected directly affected by uh, large scale oil and mining projects, um, but also how those often rural struggles can get connected to uh, the masses of people that live in urban areas, some of whom might be considered frontline or directly affected communities in a sort of traditional sense, um, but some of whom might not. Be, uh, sort of see themselves as directly affected by the fossil fuel economy. Um, so the question is how how those localized struggles, which again, do have planetary impact, keeping the coal in the ground and the oil in the ground, as uh, as Ashley mentioned, is, is vital. Um, but in order to kind of uh, build coalitions that could not only stop particular projects, but also transform the economic system and the relationship more broadly between humans and non-human nature, we would need to see even more connections between grassroots popular sector struggles in urban areas um, and those taking place in in rural peripheries. Who else wants to bite? I could. Go for it. Okay. Um, Well, so in the research I did for my book, Extreme Cities, on Hurricane Sandy, um, what I found was that self-organizing efforts like Occupy Sandy were some of the most effective ways of reacting to a climate disaster on the ground, much more effective than uh, FEMA and the Red Cross and other official entities. So I think it's really important to um, think about Uh, what I call disaster communism as a huge resource and find ways to amplify that and uh, to support forms of community self-organization and to sort of spread those forms, as Thea was saying. Um, 
But I think we inevitably have to confront the question of the state and how to articulate direct democracy to uh, other scales, um, whether it's cities or um, particular states, as in, you know, uh, New York State, uh, which has the control of um, energy revision uh, within its purview, or more broadly, the nation state. And, and let me give one example of why it's important to think about this kind of articulation of direct democracy and the state itself. Um, you know, much of the success in transforming the energy grid in Germany, which is often held up for its uh, so-called energy venda, you know, its energy transformation as one of the great examples of the possibility of making a shift to renewable energy. Much of that came through uh, these energy collectives that were put together um, by local communities, and these collectives were governed through direct democracy. The same is true in, in Denmark. But it was only because of state-level feed-in tariffs that supported the creation of these local collectives that direct democracy was possible. So you really have to find ways to have examples of horizontal self-organizing going on, but also gaining significant purchase over the state and really making inroads towards a complete transformation of representative democracy into something very different from the kind of corrupt kleptocratic system that we currently see in most parts of the world. Um, I, yeah, that's, a, that's such a great point, Ashley, and I'd, I'd love to just echo that and, and add to it for a moment. Um, the thing about the nation state, and there are tons of problems with the nation state, and we all know that, obviously. Um, the nation state is hugely important because without nation national level support, the kinds of local initiatives that you mentioned, Ashley, um, in terms of, you know, uh, energy cooperatives, but likewise, many of the issues that Thea raised, you know, energy grids uh, and kind of essentially resource allocation and extraction and so on, uh, regulations uh, all throughout the world, all this stuff comes through the nation state. Um, a third you know, piece of this is that the nation state is so central as a vehicle for investment when we're talking about regions that are not themselves prosperous. So if you look at the US right now under Trump, of course, what's happening in New York State, California, uh, and so on is hugely important, including in modeling the kinds of uh, you know, potential carbon tax and then, and then you know, uh, anti-inequality investments uh, that you can get. But a state like Pennsylvania or many other U.S. states, you know, Pennsylvania is where I happen to live now, ne will never have enough uh, independent uh, sort of revenues to fund their own mini Green New Deal. Um, you need the nation state to even out territorial inequalities and to provide that spending power um, throughout, throughout the country, which is so central to uh, you know, reducing and ultimately, you know, eliminating inequalities. And of course, the nation state will have to be transformed in that process. Um, for these reasons, I think actually the Paris Climate Agreement is sometimes underrated. Um, the whole logic of the Paris Climate Agreement is that we screwed up by making everything about global diplomacy and global consensus. What we really need is to empower individual nation states to um, make their own carbon reduction plans. And then the core concept is that the Paris Agreement isn't nearly ambitious enough, but the idea is to ratchet up. Uh, kind of what I was saying a little bit earlier. You ratchet up commitment on decarbonization um, as as time passes. So as you develop the confidence and the tools and the sort of technological intuition to reduce carbon, you're then able to get more and more ambitious as the years pass. So the kind of nonlinear political and economic change that we need to prevent nonlinear climate change 
Um, that's going to come as we develop confidence uh, and, and get used to this transformation, which hasn't really happened yet. Um, just shifting gears very quickly on this point you made, Dan, in terms of catastrophism. I mean, let me just name some names here. Um, David Wallace Wells' New York Magazine piece that went viral, um, The Uninhabitable Earth. Nathaniel Rich's recent piece in New York Times Magazine, Losing Earth. Uh, Roy Scranton's recent book, We're Doomed, Now What? Um, initially came to, to fame for his op-ed essay, uh, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Okay, these are all uh, white men. I don't think it's a coincidence. When you think about climate catastrophe in the long-term total obliteration, there is no such thing as social inequality because everybody is equally dead. But if you think about climate impacts in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, if you think about the different models for addressing climate change, it has everything to do with racial and economic and gender inequalities. And if you think only in the very vast long term, you as a kind of privileged, uh, affluent American white male really dissolve the inequalities that have that completely structure our world into one giant kind of like death ship. Um, but if you have an actual pragmatic short term political perspective, you realize that these inequalities structure everything that we do about climate change, everything in terms of how climate change affects us. And when you think in that short term, you can then articulate politics that redress those inequalities and eliminate those inequalities. And that's actually how you're going to build the mass popular support for a total transformation of how the economy works. So I'm extremely, extremely upset and kind of enraged at these like perpetual apocalyptic narratives that just dissolve the nature of our social world into one big like goopy sad mush. Uh, <laughs> and again, fully in favor of thinking short term, pragmatically, politically and putting inequality at the very center of how we think about climate change. And it's an optimistic conversation because there's so much we can do, um, but that there's so much that we can do only happens when we actually tackle inequalities at the same time. All right. And now the conversation will magically transition to last Friday in New York. <laughs> awesome. Love awesome. magic. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot, now out in paperback. I interviewed George just recently about this very book on the show. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. Guardian columnist George Monbiot shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light, as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. One issue that... that uh these comments have brought up is the question of like who is engaged in what we might think of as climate struggles. And often on the left, you hear about what are called frontline communities engaged in frontline struggles, uh, places like struggles like Standing Rock. But for you all, what defines the front lines? And 
do we need to expand that framework so that it includes things like urban water drinkers in Cuenca, Ecuador, and uh, formerly incarcerated solar panel installers in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, and, and housing activists in Crown Heights. How should we think about, about where the front lines are and who's fighting on them? Well, I mean, I think because of the, the way that our entire economy is now kind of dependent on fossil fuels, I, I think every place is basically a front line. You know, there's just like no place and no issue that isn't going to intersect in some way with a climate crisis. Um, uh, even if it isn't now, it, it will. And changing climate, like rising sea levels or rising heat waves, that's going to exacerbate many, many of the problems that already exist. Or even things like when, for the climate movement in urban spaces, there, there's a lot of talk about greening neighborhoods. Um, and that's a good thing. Like we should, you know, all, it's good for us to all have more green space. It, it can cool down cities. Um, but at the same time, it also, you know, it can make a neighborhood much more attractive to the real estate industry. And that's something to be like very cognizant about. It's not enough for us to just like talk about greening an urban space. It has to happen in concert with an affordable housing strategy or program. Um, everything, I think, has to become a climate issue, basically. Uh, Daniel, you write about people, I think the term you use is like accidental climate activists, and that is definitely in line with this idea that the climate struggle is everywhere, but it seems like for it to be done politically right, the climate activists have to be more than, than non-accidental, ideally. That's right, yeah. So, you know, I, I find in my research on Sao Paulo and New York, I make this argument that housing movements defending affordable density against gentrification are the people who are promoting the lowest carbon vision of the city currently on offer. The, the, the fight against gentrification is the fight for climate justice. Um, to find out, you just have to follow the carbon. And what you find is that affordable density in well-connected neighborhoods like Crown Heights, under assault from gentrification, which ends up reducing residential density nine times out of 10. Um, and it's not just a defense of affordable density in terms of inhabitants per building or inhabitants per room, but what it's about is defending a long-term vision of the city built up by unions, racial justice groups, community groups, where public goods are prioritized over private consumption, schools, uh, daycares, libraries, you know, basketball courts, all the kinds of things that enable low-carbon leisure and low-carbon life in the city. Um, as Mike Davis says, the cornerstone of the low-carbon city is the priority of public uh, affluence over private wealth. So then the question is, yeah, isn't it ideal if these groups embrace the climate label? And it's, it's happening. It's happening in Sao Paulo. It happened, a housing movement led by you know, women of, working class women of color, more and more talking to its members about climate justice. In New York City, you see a group like Align, which is developing a proposal to dramatically reduce uh, emissions through energy efficiency in big New York buildings, working with labor unions, and specifically uh, uh, legislating so that the retrofits don't give landlords the opportunity to raise prices in regulated apartments. So you are seeing kind of around the world the shift from housing movements that don't talk about climate change and see environmentalists as elitist enemies to instead sort of forming a partnership, what I call democratic ecologies, which is kind of a counterweight to the Bloomberg-style elite ecologies. So that's good news. But again, absent major infusions of investment, I worry that that kind of rhetorical shift and that kind of intellectual shift starts to fritter away when communities end up again playing defense. So you need a combination of organizing and alliance and investment to really deepen um, that new politics. But the fact that it exists, the fact that the people who are fighting to, to live a decent life 
are also climate protagonists um, and that they're growing and getting more powerful all around the world, that makes me wake up every morning feeling good about our chances of fighting back climate change. Thea, you're, you're involved in a frontline climate struggle in Rhode Island that might not appear to be that mm-hmm. at first blush with Providence DSA. It's against National Grid, the sh- private shareholder-owned utility that runs the show in the small state. Um, it connects the needs of working-class consumers, questions of the social ownership of, of wealth, and obviously renewable energy and climate change. It, explain a little bit about this campaign that you're working on and what lessons you think it might offer for eco-socialists organizing elsewhere. Um, So the campaign is guided by an explicitly eco-socialist vision to establish a publicly owned utility that would um, simultaneously democratize, decarbonize, and decommodify the energy system. And I've also started adding a fourth D to that, which is decolonize, which is to think kind of circling back to Ashley's point about racial capitalism, about the environmental racism that pervades citing decisions in terms of where LNG plants are, or where, where substations are. So kind of bringing that to the fore as well. So our long-term vision is we want a publicly owned utility that's democratically controlled and powered by renewables. Um, but kind of again, kind of picking off on what Audrey said about meeting people where they're at and the sort of 101 of community organizing, a lot of what we've been focused on in the short and medium term is affordable energy. Um, there's a shutoff crisis in Rhode Island. There might be shutoff crises in other states, but they tend to be sort of not reported because energy's not yet as politicized as it should be in the U.S. Um, tens of thousands of Rhode Islanders a year um, Uh, who can't pay their bills, get their gas or electricity shut off. Um, Meanwhile, National Grid, which interestingly emerged out of the utility privatization process in the 1990s in the UK and then went global, and the US is one of its biggest markets, um, it makes, I think, around $2 billion a year in its US business. And you know, meanwhile, poor Rhode Islanders um, that can't pay a $50 bill, a $100 bill, a $200 bill are being shut off. Um, so we're trying to address the shutoff crisis as a kind of moral claim and a kind of um, welfare rights, poor people's kind of movement type of strategy um, of informing people about their rights as ratepayers um, to not be shut off if they meet certain conditions, um, but also to organize them and educate them sort of more broadly about um, getting involved in, a, in an eco-socialist campaign. So we're kind of starting from that everyday material need, which doesn't immediately connect to climate for most people, but sort of using that as a platform to then talk about who controls our energy, who makes these decisions, why are they made behind closed doors, and how can we sort of open them up in an emancipatory direction. I want to just come back to the question of scale, um, because what you're doing, I, I think, is so interesting and exciting. And yet, on some level, it seems to me that given the immense challenges we face, as Daniel was pointing out earlier, we need very ambitious proposals on a, a national plane. Um, and in terms of renewable energy, I think that there are concrete reasons to think about scaling up. I mean, California right now, for example, is, is thinking about merging with other Western states uh, in order to deal with very issues of kind of unreliability of renewable energy. Um, but it's faced with a bit of a quandary, right? Because Californians have established some of the most progressive policies around energy in the West, and the states that it could merge with 
are exactly the opposite. So questions of sort of regional scale and how a kind of nationalization of the energy sector might play out are, are really thorny ones. And one thing that we haven't talked about so far at this point, which I think really has to be put on the table, is the role of unions, right? Because unions just convinced the Democratic Party, uh, the DNC at least, to back away from its pledge not to accept fossil capital funding, right? So, you know, there's sectors of the union movement which need to be uh, brought into the fold of a kind of radical climate justice movement, but um, they're not there yet, and it's for very pragmatic economic reasons. Renewable energy jobs don't pay as well as jobs in the fossil sector. So how do we deal with all of these very complicated questions? And they're less, uh, less unionized as well, right? Exactly. Um, not unrelated, yeah. which uh, does bring up a question that I wanted to talk about, which is why the green jobs message has failed to catch on, at least as it's mostly been offered in its liberal iteration, why it's failed to catch on politically in the US at, at the very same time that the, the promise of uh, resurrected coal, making coal great again, which is really this like phantom limb of American prosperity, there's way fewer people employed in coal, they end in the green energy sector, yet green energy doesn't really, uh, has not proven politically persuasive to people, whereas coal, where very few people actually work, uh, was a key facet of Trump's election campaign. Uh, thoughts about why that is? I mean, um, my understanding, I mean, that's a great question, and, um, it's definitely, I mean, green jobs did not pan out as like a rhetorical device. <laughs> and maybe we'll come back. But uh, everybody that you talk to will agree with that. And probably they started too early um, for the message to take on. But it is certainly true that solar employs, far, um, solar employs far more people than coal. And it's actually one of the less unionized sectors of the movement. But, um, so there's a guy in New York who works on these building retrofits with uh, trade, you know, trades unions workers, often thought of as more conservative members of the labor movement. And he's like, look, I don't call them green jobs. I just call them construction jobs. Like energy retrofits, he calls them construction jobs. Um, so... I think there are like various lessons to be learned from like the bad branding of that. I think it's also true that in many congressional districts, you have you know conservative Democrats or Republicans who end up going to bat for wind and solar, talking just in terms of like energy security because actually those jobs do have a political weight. So the question isn't exact. I mean, the question really boils down to how can you create a kind of national symbol or a national story um, different than the green jobs one, where people understand that like retraining works, that this is like a real line of work, that it really goes on. It sort of aggregates these like random regional stories. I think you're right that there is a weird way that Trump was able to turn the kind of coal worker into a metonym. I don't think any of us really knows how successful that was beyond a few districts. But certainly at the national symbol system, the um, solar worker just doesn't really exist. Um, something that's been pointing, you know, there is like an image on the internet from like 2008 of black workers putting solar panels on a roof in Oakland. And it's just the same image repeated over and over and over and over again. And there's something about that idea, which is a real idea, which is, you know, low, you know, like working class people of color being given jobs that hasn't been made real. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think there has to be more investment and there has to be some creativity in the message. I think another piece, which is, um, I know Alyssa Vattastoni has written about and as well as others kind of bringing an eco-feminist socialist angle to this is uh, um, reconceptualizing green jobs beyond like the hard hat jobs, right? So thinking about care work, um, uh, work in education and health fields um, and other sort of service sectors as um, low carbon work that isn't about producing things, but about caring for people or providing services or, you know, teaching uh, um, or caring for elders 
elders. Um, and that would be a big part, that already is a big part of what the working class is now um, in the US and would be a big part of what a green transition would look like, more of that type of work, of course, better paid and unionized and more valorized and respected. But um, I think expanding the notion of green jobs away from just you know retraining coal miners, not to downplay that, um, but, but to other sectors of the economy that are part of what an eco-socialist future might look like. If I could just say one other thing about the figure of the coal miner, which is obviously part of what you're saying, Daniel, this kind of macho nationalist rhetoric, which Trump takes pride in. But focusing on the coal miner um, the way that Trump did also allows him to ignore the kind of conflicts within different sectors of fossil capitalism, particularly the fact that it's uh, natural gas. It's essentially putting coal miners, um, as well as automation, putting coal miners out of their jobs. It's certainly what's leading to the shutdown of coal-fired um, power plants. Um, but obviously, liquid uh, natural gas is a huge problem. It's being touted as a transitional energy form. Um, there has to be a very strong critique of that, because the more of that infrastructure gets put in place, the more we're stuck with continuing kind of fossil fuels. And I think that's why um, the kind of frontline uh, activism against any new um, fossil infrastructure, particularly anti-pipeline um, work, is really, really important. Um, and I think we also need to think about um, kind of magnifying or ramifying the idea of the front line um, in terms of ways that we can support those kinds of struggles. Because one of the things that Trump has done is to criminalize um, any kind of environmental protest, to treat it as, although this started happening under the Obama administration, but to treat it as a form of terrorism, right? And he's very much invoked the idea of energy and uh, national security. Um, and so we really need to fight against those kinds of notions of national security relating to energy, um, uh, at least fossil capitalism, but notice that Trump is willing to talk about energy and national security. I mean, he sounds very much like an eco-socialist on some level, right? He's willing to bring up that idea of nationalizing energy sectors. I mean, that's what his latest um, legislation is purporting to do. Of course, it's in order to prop up fossil capitalism. But he's put the idea that the market is not or should not be the determining force in the energy sector on the table. And I think that's something that eco-socialists should take up and run with. Well, so just one last thing. I mean, I certainly, I mean, the prestige of the market is not like exactly the world's most, you know, the happiest thing in the world right now. Um, so that's good for the left in its own way. The, um, I just wanted to pick up one, on something that Thea said. Um, so just add one more piece to the mix here. So green jobs, care work, as a redefinition of green job, it is low carbon, that is fantastic. And then another thing, if we look to Europe, Northern Europe as an example, although it has certain problems, is the idea of work hours reduction. That's like the oldest demand in the labor movement. And there is a, you know, endless empirical studies showing that people are happy to work fewer hours, often take home you know, a similar or slightly smaller paycheck, maintain very high quality uh, benefits in terms of health, education, and so on. And it seems to me one, one thing that the procurement power of the state can do with public jobs is offer more opportunities for people to reduce hours without giving up any benefits. In Holland, thanks to work from labor unions and feminist organizations since the 80s, it's been possible for workers to unilaterally reduce their work hours. So they take a small pay cut, but they maintain benefits and all the other sort of benefits of employment. So I think we need to think about the idea, if we're going to have a job-centered uh, climate politics, knowing that we can't have infinite economic growth, we also have to think about transitioning the notion of a job away from earning as much as possible to a thing that you do uh, that's part of a rich life of spending a lot of time with people you love doing cool stuff. Uh, and by rebalancing the kind of social wage, uh, you know, as opposed to the individual one, that's something that can be done and you can sort of start bit by bit right away. 
which, by the way, I feel like um, some of the like videos and the messaging that Kenyela Ng in mm-hmm. like Hawaii is putting out is like exactly about that. Um, and yeah, yeah, more uh, less carbon, more surfing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, on on that front, I think that one way out of the politico-ideological cul-de-sac that we've been trapped into is, and that Kanye Ng was, was helping to, to lead the way out of, is redefining what freedom looks like. And that maybe includes redefining freedom as requiring uh, liberation. And the, the current dominant conceptions of freedom, unfortunately, but predictably, have an often invisible carbon basis. And this is something that both uh, Audrea and Daniel have written about. Audrea, you wrote, quote, six decades after the initial publication of On the Road, the grip of consumer culture has only tightened on contemporary life. And people of all demographics now have the freedom to define themselves through a seemingly endless supply of goods reliant on petroleum, cosmetics, fashion, electronics, travel amenities, household goods, Instagrammable meals featuring food products shipped from abroad. There's a lot to discuss here, but some initial questions I have are, how do we expose that some of these luxuries are in reality tools of oppression and alienation? And what would a new, less carbon-intensive vision of freedom and even pleasure, something that Daniel Adana Cohen likes to write about, look like? Daniel, your eco-socialist vision, as you laid it out in a recent Jacobin (laughs) article, included vibrators and wine. Um, And you're also a big proponent of the idea that we must have a positive future. Often these discussions, at least as they get framed for us in dominant narratives around climate change, uh, are really about scarcity and the necessity of austerity. But you argue that we have to be talking about abundance. Uh, that's right, yeah. Um, until they come up with a diesel-powered vibrator, I think we can definitely um, support those, you know, electrify everything. Um, so, you know, the, I think that what, what's kind of magical about leisure, well, leisure is magical, and it feels good, but what makes it possible is something that we know about. So in 1936, millions of French workers went on strike, uh, men and women all over the country, and what they won from Prime Minister Leon Blum, who was, by the way, the Jewish... Uh, sort of head of state of France that nobody ever told you about in high school because he, in 1936, under pressure from this workers' movement, head of a new Socialist Party government, mandated two weeks uh, of paid vacation, 40-hour work week. Uh, these were historic firsts. Hundreds of thousands of French workers went to the beach for the first time in their lives, piling bicycles onto rail cars, uh, taking them to the beach, also going camping. A huge, massive expansion um, of the kind of concept of everyday life. And in fact, one of the, the most famous banners that workers uh, carried with them during these marches said, life belongs to us. Um, And that's, I think, a very very powerful thing. And in a way, we've we've kind of become trapped into this notion that private consumption is the reward for work. But historically, if you expand leisure time, shorten the work week, and provide the kind of infrastructure that allows for regional low-carbon leisure, like bicycle cars on trains, then people are going to take advantage. So I think we have to kind of reframe it a bit from a moralistic obligation to have low-carbon pleasure, to where low-carbon pleasure is an easy and morally satisfying reward for, like, you know, a good hard day. 
Like we all we all deserve this, and and that story needs to be told. And I, you know, if you think about New York City, like Coney Island, if you think about like Atlantic City, they're actually the the country is. Or if you think of these old vacation camps in upstate New York, where families used to go, the country is littered with infrastructures for regional leisure for the working class that we now make fun of uh, as being like culturally kind of hilarious, rather than celebrating the kind of you know physical and social and cultural achievement that if we had more of it right now would actually save us. And they were destroyed by cheap airfare to Florida, basically. And Trump casinos. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but this is an important, this abundance, it really stands in contrast to one dominant narrative, which is like the, li- the, the liberal one is that, you know, good, good people drive Priuses and bad people drive SUVs. And the way I think a lot of conservative Americans interpret that then is that being environmentally conscious is, is, is having less and not having what you want. Um, I'm going to take this to a totally different context, which is sort of the broader hemispheric politics around oil and mining and fossil capital in the Americas. Um, And I think a sort of other positive vision in line with some of the things that have already been said is this idea of buen vivir or living well, which is a vision of abundance. I mean, it's certainly not one of scarcity. Um, It is one of kind of socio-natural harmony um, and and natural abundance and sort of human pleasure in in that and human um, cultural activity in relationship to nature. And this is something that's been uh, proposed by indigenous and environmental activists um, in Latin America primarily, but there are kind of parallel uh, um, parallel uh, worldviews elsewhere in the world as well, um, and I think it's it's in some ways very compelling because it it definitely is a counter to the austerity narrative. Like it's a strongly ecological vision of how to rebalance um, the relationship between humans and nature, um, but it's one that again kind of has a sort of pleasurable, abundant component to it. Um, I think kind of getting back to some of the the strategic challenges that we were talking about earlier, one difficulty with this narrative is that it's been proposed by um, indigenous environmental activists on the front line, so to speak. It's usually referred to as directly affected communities in Latin America, places that are immediately impacted by oil or mining projects as a sort of counter, you know, counter uh, view to, to the imposition of fossil capital. But it hasn't really taken hold in urban areas as much. Aside from like environmental activists in urban areas that like this idea, the sort of masses of low-income people in Latin America probably wouldn't describe themselves as proponents of Buen Vivir, right? It's something that is very rooted in indigenous communities. Um, so that's kind of the challenge of how do you bring this vision of socio-natural abundance and harmony um, out of rural areas um, and out of its connection to specific cultural contexts and broaden it as a view that includes social housing or includes transit or includes green spaces in cities. It, I think it's getting there and there are people on the ground doing this work in Latin America, but using that worldview, um, that positive sort of narrative as a way to bridge rural and urban um, would be, I think, an interesting uh, direction for environmentalism to take in Latin America. Well, a, a follow-up question on that for, for Latin America, but also for, for Africa and much of Asia, is how does the vision for a post-carbon future that we've been discussing speak to the development demands of third-world countries that have been pillaged for centuries and that to this day don't have so many basic and critical consumption needs met. And in Latin America, as well as as other places, uh, state and popular control over developing these very natural resources that we need to stop developing ASAP, that has been a cornerstone of democratic, socialist, and anti-imperialist politics. So how, how is that, 
How should that be addressed, and how do you see it being addressed in Latin America and elsewhere? Right. So in the past decade and a half, um, the sort of recent wave of so-called pink-tide governments or left governments, several of which are now out of power or facing serious threats to their power, um, but did have a sustained um, decade to 15 years in power, um, starting with the election of Hugo Chavez, um, uh, and continuing through with Correa and Morales and Lula and um, all the rest that we're probably familiar with, um, made sort of resource nationalism a cornerstone of their politics. And in doing so, they weren't kind of inventing something new. They were drawing on a very long history that dates to the early 20th century of popular sector movements demanding national sovereignty over resources such as oil and mining, but also water and land in direct confrontation with foreign capital, who were the owners of of those um, resources. Um, And so they sort of drew on this long well of kind of um, popular organizing and also actual experiences, um, whether um, um, in Chile or Mexico or elsewhere, of nationalization of those of those resource sectors, some of which had been then gutted during um, privatization in the neoliberal period. Um, so they kind of put this forward, like, we're going to take back control, we're going to um, um, take control of oil and mining. Um, and what kind of is interesting about that is the way that then sort of fractured the political terrain on the left in Latin America in so many ways, where at the same time that those governments were promoting kind of a resource nationalist leftism, um, you had envir- this movements that I were refer- was referring to earlier, indigenous and environmental movements, pushing back against that with um, radical ecological proposals um, for shifting away from resource dependency. Um, so, you know, that kind of not to sort of blame either side in that conflict, and it's it's a difficult, it's a kind of tricky story, but the upshot was that the wet, the left was weakened overall, and there wasn't like a vision of sovereignty, and I think that this needs to be pitched at the regional level, not, not just at the national level, but there wasn't a vision of sovereignty that could be articulated against foreign or international capital, um, but not sort of re-entrench the extractive model. And sort of that kind of got lost in, in the mix. And I'm not sure where that leaves us now, except that in many cases, the right is back in power and we're seeing record levels of oil concessions um, throughout the Americas. Um, and we're going to see more deforestation and contribution to climate change as a result of that. Um, so I think that formulating some vision of self-determination, of democratic control, um, that is anti-imperialist without being extractivist is kind of the challenge for a lot of countries in the left, in, the, in Latin America and the global south yeah, more broadly. I, I agree with you completely, Thea. Um, in terms of the original question which you asked, Dan, about um, uh, abundance and the vision of abundance, I think it's really important to remember that over one billion people don't have electricity around the world, and that that has um, really heavy effects, particularly on women, you know, who are forced to cook using charcoal stoves, and uh, children who suffer really high rates of um, lung disease as a result of this. So, you know, being able to um, uh, deploy renewable energy to that 1.2 billion people is going to make a tremendous difference, and it also, since it would be distributed and decentralized. It also could have quite important kind of democratizing potential. So I think, you know, ideally movements would be working in solidarity and supporting those kinds of initiatives in the global south. Um, 
uh, and I think it's important also to remember that there's a, a proud history um, of fighting a kind of consumer republic model here in the United States and in other developed countries, right? You know, we have critics like Guy Debord who criticized the Society of the Spectacle and movements um, like the Dodge Revolutionary Workers Movement who were fighting for worker control of the assembly line rather than just being able to consume as much as possible. So, you know, while getting wages up and working as much as possible might be kind of the dominant tradition in the labor movement in the United States. It's not the only tradition, and there have been massive uprisings to try and forge a different tradition. And I think it's important to revive those and know that we have those histories to draw on. Yeah, that is all really important. It seems like a, a common thread running through that is that older, uh, maybe non-ecologically inclined Marxist forms of analysis like world systems theories might not have had that ecological piece of analysis built in, but it, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to extend this history of underdevelopment and pillage to, to lead to that sort of analysis being included. Um, Ashley, you touched on renewable energy being more decentralized and thus having a greater potential for being democratically controlled. And I want to talk about the the material politics of this of this massive transformation that y'all are arguing has to happen really soon. Um, Timothy Mitchell in Carbon Democracy talks about the different forms, how different forms of carbon extraction and distribution have shaped power relations across space, between nations, and between workers and capitalists. So to break from carbon, we have to transform energy, and to do that, we have to transform the built environment that produces, distributes, and consume, consumes it. And both Ashley and Daniel, you both wrote about how this built environment must include democratically controlled energy systems. And it also has to do things like uh, navigate the, uh, the, the politics of putting in windmills and solar farms. Daniel, you talk about how we are going from like drilling down into the earth to spreading out. And that's proven to be quite controversial in a lot of places. And even more controversial, Ashley, according to current projections, New Orleans will one day no longer exist as a city. So there's this incredibly fraught question of retreat, which is people relocating away from rising seas. So my question is, what does a just reckoning with climate change require in terms of remaking political geography, particularly of cities? Wow. Um, thanks for that narrow question. <laughs> Damn. Okay, well, let me say something about the energy and then maybe just a word about... So, um, to, to give some sense, to, to, as Ashley was saying earlier, you know, sun and wind, you know, they're variable. Okay. Um, to have 90% of U.S. energy by 2050, for 90% of that energy to be come from the wind and the sun, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimates we would need to double the transmission capacity uh, in the United States, something like 200 million new miles uh, of electric wires. Um, the, the wind farms take up a ton of space, too. So to get about 10% of our energy from wind right now would require taking up all the, as much space as New Hampshire has. So, you know, these things will get more efficient. There's offshore wind, but it's, it's in a massive, massive, massive transformation of the landscape. And the combination, especially of wind farms and transmission lines, has provoked a ton of opposition. It's probably why the conservatives are in power in Ontario, where there's a very active group called Mothers Against Wind Turbines. Um, I recommend their Facebook group. It's hilarious. They're uh, something in the order of two to 300 uh, anti-wind groups in the United States uh, right now. So 
we talk about blockading with fossil fuels, but there is something very similar happening with wind. And if you look at the flyers that are posted on the internet, they use basically the same crappy fonts. Um, so there's a kind of like potential, and I mean, you know, it depends on the location and everything, but there's a potential big upsurge of resistance to this kind of huge rollout of, of landscape transformation. To me, what that says is, okay, one, obviously, yes, we need energy cooperatives, but you're not going to get 100% of that. We also have to think in the scale terms, what does it mean to kind of democratize the economy and democratize the energy system? You know, um, green banks are spreading up all over the country and all over the world, and nobody has come up with a model of how a green bank is run. But we know what credit unions are like. There's a longstanding argument in the left around democratizing finance, turning finance into a public utility. There are campaigns like the one that Thea is involved with, fantastic campaigns, to kind of re to make utilities public again. And a public institution doesn't have to be like run by the government out of the government's like main head offices. There are other ways. So I think to me, the opportunity of this massive investment in the landscape is to involve local communities in making their own decisions about what kinds of energy infrastructure they want to be a part of, and to think not just the energy cooperative itself, the energy production itself being democratized, but also the financial means by which it's done being democratized, the management of the grid, which is like a massive new complex thing with clean energy, that also has to be democratized. So it's really a moment when institutions that govern our lives are being rapidly transformed, and if the left is on top of this, then that means democratizing like power, literally democratizing power. So that's the huge opportunity. And just saying, oh, wind, solar, move the dials you know, on a simulator, that totally misses what's actually happening here, which is a combination of social, technical transformation, where you know, if we're motivated, we can have a massive impact. Um, yeah, your question also is about cities and re-engineering cities. Um, and it's undeniable that cities around the world are in big trouble. You know, um, The issue with putting so much carbon into the uh, atmosphere and so much energy into the oceans is that it's a bit like um, you know, the Titanic. It's very hard to shift its course once it's set on a particular course. You know, we've got a lot of melting power in the oceans, and so we're going to get a lot of sea level rise, a lot more impactful storms in cities. Um, and you know, probably about half a billion people having to move away from cities, or uh, at least we'll have to retrofit cities where at least half a, uh, half a billion people are living. Um, that means basically all of the coastal cities around the planet are in deep trouble, and some like New Orleans and Miami are just definitely going underwater. So, um, you know, we face real questions about what we're going to do. We're going to have to shift massive populations of people. So we need to start talking about climate refugees, both within our country and also internationally, how we can harbor climate refugees, since, you know, we are the greatest colonizer of the atmosphere uh, after maybe the UK historically because of carbon emissions. Um, but in addition to sort of thinking about ethical and political responsibilities, it's also the possibility to, um, again, think about... Um, affluence and a good life, right? Because the major problem in the 20th century, um, one of the major issues was that we saw cities as bad, you know, and consequently in the United States, we had suburbanization, uh, which leads to massive emissions. That's why the average per capita footprint of Americans is double Europeans, although arguably Europeans have a better quality of life. So cities are um, very minimal impact in terms of um, uh, the carbon footprint of people because it means they can have public transportation. 
so there's an opportunity to re-engineer northern American cities to make them um, more uh, uh, filled with amenities, more attractive to people, um, uh, and also to you know fight forms of galloping gentrification that are displacing people. Um, and of course, we need to make sure that the American model of suburbanization is not exported to the rest of the global south, which is what's been happening. Yeah, I just want to underline something that um, Daniel brought up and now going away from the urban and back to the to the rural that, you know, we talk about sort of renewable energy in the abstract. We need to add more renewable energy to our sort of energy portfolios, but renewable energy means projects in specific places, right? And so from the perspective of a given rural community, a land-intensive utility scale solar or wind project doesn't feel that different than an extractive, than a mining or oil project. It it replaces previous land uses. It might threaten livelihoods like agriculture or tourism or whatever else that land was used for previously. So I think it's key to sort of use um, the lessons that we have from the extractive sector and think proactively about how can we get community buy-in and not just buy-in in a sort of like top-down way, but actual community ownership in a cooperative sense or other models um, over the renewable energy sector from the beginning. So it's not like an intrusive extractive thing and we don't have these moms against solar, but that we actually have sort of, you know, we're the local wind people. We provide wind on a distributed grid and that's something to take pride in and have ownership over and that provides jobs. And, you know, there's a positive and democratic way to do it, but it's not the prevailing model at the moment. And the, the specific way that urban greening happens matters a lot because there's a lot of, of, of bullshit when it comes to like the politics of urban sustainability. Uh, the greening a neighborhood can make it ripe for gentrification of course, which is something that a few people here have, have written about, I think, because the green leisure spaces and just like the aura of sustainability is is seen as something key to attracting and appeasing affluent young workers. Um, if making neighborhoods less lethal to poor residents also exposes them to real estate capital, how should this be done? Okay, um, so you know, actually, also, this, this has to be combined with the question about retreat. So millions, then tens of millions of people in the U.S. by the end of the century will be relocating uh, to where? Um, at the same time, so that's one question. Then, as exactly as you said, Dan, when you essentially improve a place, ecologically or otherwise, its price goes up. Uh, you know, housing prices are going up way faster than wages are. You have now a group of urban planners who use this phrase, just green enough, their idea is to green neighborhoods, but so subtly that the real estate people don't notice, <laughs> which is like, you know, I don't know. That's just Stockholm Syndrome 101. Um, so <laughs> the thing is just, it's, it's just, if you think about what it means to, to have affordable density, what it means to imagine the gradual relocation of tens of millions of people, you cannot have climate justice, or even really decarbonization and stability and private land markets. It's just not possible. Now, how far and aggressive the intervention into land markets will be, whether it's in the form of like public home building, a la Jeremy Corbyn, a massive expansion of community land trusts. I mean, I think the institutional forums need to proliferate and to vary, but the market governance of land is just not compatible with dealing with this problem. And it, so it has to be transformed. Um, I want to finish by asking a, a few questions about the, the state of the, the discourse and political debate. Audrey, you cite uh, Amitav Ghosh's assertion that 
inertia in the face of climate catastrophe is rooted in, quote, the bourgeois belief in the regularity of the world. And that quote struck me because I wonder how that regu- what the state of that regularity is at a time when, one, weird weather is becoming the new normal, and also a time when there's this, also what we should make of this liberal commitment, this liberal bourgeois commitment to regularity under Trump, when everything that once seems so normal to so many appears to be so out of whack, and the new liberal mantra is, is literally, this is not normal. Yeah, I'm... I mean, when he wrote this book, which was really just published, like, what, last year? So really not that long ago. Um, And what he's talking about uh, with that phrase is, like, this idea that, um, like, strange things don't really happen in the world. If they do, they're really out of the ordinary, and we can mitigate it and control it, you know? And the grown-ups will come around and figure it out. Yeah. Um, And I kind of increasingly don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, I was, again, just in oil country, I was in Alberta for the last couple weeks, and there's been, like, massive wildfires happening, like, across the Rocky Mountains, and in the last week, this just, like, smelled like campfire in Calgary, like, which is quite far away from the wildfires, and I, I, you know, I think there's, like, even people who work in the oil industry, I mean, they believe that climate change is happening, they just also happen to support the oil industry, and I think, you know, I think that's starting to shift now. If I can just put on my English professor hat for a second, I'd say that Amitav Ghosh, um, it's important to remember that he's talking about the tradition of the bourgeois novel, and he's essentially dissing speculative fiction, science fiction, and all the other so-called minor genres. But in many ways, it's been those genres that have been most responsive to climate crisis and have thought about speculative futures, possible futures, and possible political realignments um, that we need. Um, uh, so I, I think you know he's buying into the hierarchies of the literary world too much. And in fact, if you think in a way that's non-hierarchical about the literary world, there's plenty of representation of the irreality, the emergency of the present moment in uh, the literary world, which he discounts. And I would say that Trump himself in um, politics is a response to lack of regularity. You know, he's a response to the evident bankruptcy of um, neoliberal ideology uh, and to the increasingly dire straits which the majority of people uh, in the United States find themselves. And you can say the same thing for uh, populist strongmen in many other countries around the world. Um, and, you know, so I think we really see with a figure like Trump that we're going to have uh, a state of barbarism or we're going to have uh, socialist responses to the crises of neoliberalism and the climate crisis. And the ecological crisis is obviously already here as an ecological crisis, but is it already manifest as a political crisis? I mean, I think that I mean, that's a great question, and I think the answer is kind of ha- halfway. Um, you know, I made reference to the in Ontario, a sort of Trump-esque figure, Doug Ford, has just been elected premier. So Ontario is like the fifth most important economy in North America, um, maybe the third most active on climate change, along with uh, you know New York State and California, and arguably the things that got Doug Ford elected all had to do with uh, climate change. So there was a, a scandal when the Liberal government of Ontario. Uh, decided a, a little over a decade ago to shut down all of its coal plants right away. It had to replace that power. It decided it would build a couple of natural gas plants. There was community opposition. They canceled the contract. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars. 
They built very aggressively wind turbines, set up to build wind turbines all across the province with basically like sweetheart contracts to big companies like Samsung, where they basically wanted to kind of ram it down. And this caused a huge amount of rural opposition. And finally, to raise money for their social spending, they privatized Hydro One, which was the major public utility. And people were really pissed off about that. Now, Ontario won't have experienced this recent election as a climate election, but really the major political issues were the issues of the energy transition. Um, and if you look at you know, uh, Brazil, which was really convulsed by these protests in 2013, which the right took advantage of, it's really the result of a contradiction between, on the one hand, the left government investing in home building and car purchases to stimulate the economy and to supposedly increase the quality of workers' lives. But what this really does is causes a massive urban crisis, because you have gigantic housing towers in the middle of nowhere, and you have cities uh, clogged by cars, and the kind of crisis in the quality of life and this completely contradictory politics of consumption in everyday life of, of people. So I think that what we're seeing is not necessarily people recognizing the crises that they're living through as, uh, as climate crises, or we could speak about Trump and the coal workers, but what we're seeing is a kind of blending of the two together. And you know, I would pitch in terms of fiction, like um, uh, New, York's, uh, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is really about this intertidal idea, you know, Manhattan's half underwater, but it's sort of the book about flux and ambivalence and the, the way that politics is ultimately gonna decide between catastrophe versus you know, doing better. Um, and I pitched the fiction of Jasmine Ward uh, and the memoir of Jasmine Ward. She's a, you know, a writer, a black writer. She lives in the south of the US near the, the Gulf of Mexico. And it's, you know, her book, um, I'm forgetting the, the name, Salvage the Bones, is essentially a book about Katrina. It's a book about climate change. She retweets Michael Mann, like the second most famous climate scientist on Twitter. But climate change is never mentioned in this book, but it's a book about heat and sweat kind of taking over everyday life and ecological catastrophe. And so I think when we think about storytelling, it can't just be about green jobs, but it's really an integrative concept of like, what is the story of our times? Where are people's material interests in them? And how do we fold climate in in a way that's not, this is the thing that will shape your future only. That's cool for some of us, but like that narrative blend. And that's, you know, that's a real challenge, but I think we're up for it. Thea, does the demise of the pink tide in Latin America, at least the first iteration of it, is that something that you would describe as a climate crisis or just merely an energy crisis? Um, I mean, I would certainly attribute the sort of like domino of like failing left governments or the declining electoral uh, success of the left in Latin America as deeply tied to the extractive model of development. I don't think there's any other way to explain the sort of correlation and timing of multiple governments um, being unable to win re-election or being uh, victims of right-wing forces that in previous years uh, they would have had more popular defense against um, without understanding um, the, the change in global commodity markets, which are certainly have a important climate dimension in a variety of ways. So I guess I would say, um, yes, I mean, basically the, what happened with the end of the commodity boom and, and uh, Ashley referred to the end of the commodity super cycle earlier, the reason it's a super cycle is because it was the lo long, one of the longest ever sustained high prices for commodities across many different commodity sectors, agricultural, renewable, non-renewable, and this was in large part driven by Chinese demand and um, uh, a number of emerging industrial economies, but China foremost among them. And with the demise of, or with the decline of prices um, in uh, 2014, depending when you date it, um, these left-wing governments really had no more fiscal resources. They had sort of tied their political economic fate so closely to the con continuity of extraction um, and sort of built a resource nationalist vision around this um, to support them politically. Um, and at high levels of 
political support for good reason. They were able to fund huge expanses in uh, social services and public works projects. But when that ended, um, there was nothing to replace that. There was really no transition. Speaking, you know, we talk about a post-carbon transition, but in Latin America, it's talked about as the post-extractive transition. And there was really no transition sort of um, put into place for when that was inevitably going to end. Um, and so... Um, there are many reasons that we can talk about in each case, but I would say that the demise of the electoral left, recent demise of the electoral left in Latin America, is inextricable from the end of um, from the extractive model and the end of the commodity boom. I would just say the place that I think you can see the ways in which um, political crises are already climate crises most clearly is in the EU and the relation between uh, the kind of crack up of the EU around the question of immigrants and uh, the conflict in Syria. Um, now multiple things were happening in Syria, but there's been a lot of scholarship to show that it started from a really significant drought, which pushed people out of rural areas to cities, which then, you know, where there were these demonstrations with the Assad regime then cracking down and militarizing the conflict and, you know, many millions of refugees leaving. Um, and, and so we see the breakup of the idea of open borders and the rise of neo fascist movements um, in uh, Europe as a result of kind of reaction against these immigrants in the ways that the EU doesn't have a viable model for resettling immigrants. Um, so I think this is one of the clearest ways in which an environmental crisis is leading to the real breakup of a significant political formation into the rise of neo-fascism um, in particular European countries. And, you know, it's hard to say the extent to which immigrants to the United States are being driven by a similar kind of concatenation of factors, but um, from Central America and other places. But I don't think we can rule out climate crises in places like Honduras. You know, there's the impact of neoliberalism and of political oppression, but increasingly there's also climate crisis driving folks to come to the United States. Um, my, my last question to close things out is just like, where do things stand now? To what degree is the left having some sort of impact on climate politics? And to what extent are we in a situation where the debate is dominated by right-wing, fossil fuel-funded denialists on the one hand and neoliberal technocrats on the other? And what can we do to change that? I'm going to just answer that question going back to Latin America um, and not even though you're asking, I think you're just asking about the U.S. No, perhaps. wherever. Okay, whatever. All places. Um, and, and something that uh, kind of was relevant a little earlier in the conversation but I think speaks to this question as well is um, the, the frontline community strategy that we talked about earlier um, uh, that, that sort of centers on communities that are directly impacted by mining oil, but also by um, mega development projects that have their own environmental repercussions, including deforestation and are therefore quite relevant to climate change. Um, I, I want to note that on the one hand, this strategy has been incredibly successful. Um, scholars of the region have noted like a, a big uptick in local level conflict. And what local level conflict means is communities actually doing work to stall mining and oil projects. And this is a really important thing. We have to keep it all on the ground, right? We have to keep the oil on the ground. We have to keep the coal on the ground. We have to also not do large scale mountaintop removal if we're going to make any headway um, regarding climate change. So I think there's a lot of success there. And I also think there's a lot of really inspiring visions that I kind of mentioned earlier around what an alternative political 
political economy and political ecology might look like. I think the, the challenge though, and speaking directly to your question about the left, is that this has occurred and in some ways exacerbated, and I'm not blaming the frontline communities for this, it, it's a broader political context um, of multiple dynamics, but it has sort of split the left in Latin America on the question of extraction and not left a sort of coherent left strategy about what do we do both in the frontline communities and in communities that aren't tech, you know, sort of in a traditional sense, frontline communities. What do we do about urban areas um, and the sort of masses of, of people? Um, so I think that in some ways there's been tremendous headway made um, to bring environmental issues to the fore of national and regional politics in the Americas, but in other ways there's sort of a strategic impasse. And now with the rise of the new right, which Ashley was referring to in a sort of global sense, but is certainly salient in, in the Americas as well, um, it's unclear kind of what direction things will take. Um, okay, um, I would say that there are two countries on one timeline that really matter right now, matter more than the rest. So the common timeline is like 2050, that's what all our targets are for. But 2050 is like so impossibly far away right now, even though it is um, barely, uh, barely 30 years away, but it's irrelevant. It's like five to 10 years is the timeline where you need to really bend emissions. And if you do, you can avoid all the worst impacts of climate change and things can be pretty great. Um, so. All the, the sort of a lot of theoretical debates about what kind of energy mix is optimal for 2040 and just throw it out. The question is, what do you get to very quickly? Okay, the two countries are obviously China and the United States. Um, until the mid-2000s, both were seen as problems, the United States primarily. Then as the U.S. with Obama's election, but really starting in 06 with the Democratic wave, there came this idea that the U.S. would get its act together, but China would be the problem. Now it's clear that China, compared to any other major like gigantic economy, is investing heavily in climate you know, friendly and, and renewable energies. Of course, it's not enough, but it still has sort of turned the corner. And the US is the problem. But if you look at, again, what I was saying, in 2020, it is extremely likely that the Democratic presidential nominee will have a jobs, climate, and infrastructure plan that are pretty well connected. Um, the two best ones last time were O'Malley, Sanders less good, Clinton's the worst. Um, I don't think we're gonna get Clinton's against. It seems to me pretty <laughs> likely that we're going to get something closer to Amali Sanders or better. Um, if you look at New York City, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has an amazing climate justice plan. She gets it. Um, Julia Salazar gets it. The entire sort of left, as Kate Aranoff, who's here, has written about the kind of new left in the Democratic Party is very, very strong on climate change. So every kind of, every direction points to defeating Trump is the same as having a far more visionary energy, climate, social policy in the U.S., than has ever been the case, and it probably has been possible for decades because the role of the state was being attacked in a way that now is possible to turn around. So to me, it's like an extremely optimistic moment. We could go from 10 years ago when it looked like no major economy was tackling this to in five years from now, where the two most important economies are, are going full on on this, probably encouraging each other and sort of shifting the whole landscape of what is possible in the world. I'm extremely optimistic. Um, there's like a lot of work to do but I find like zero reasons to like cry about climate change. There are a million other issues that seem to me far darker and more despair inducing than climate change right now. Um, just to say yes, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, 
I think there are also many other places we can look to besides China and the U.S. They're clearly hugely important. There's really interesting movement in both places. But, um, you know, there are also other really important models to look at, um, you know, including in the past Germany and the way that it's helped to create um, cooperatives and the way in which there's a very strong municipalization movement. Um, and the U.K. and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's platform in labor to nationalize the energy sector. So, you agreed, know, agreed, in some agreed. places where fossil capitalism is not quite as strong, it's also possible to make pretty significant changes that can then also feed back into the visions which folks have in places like the U.S. Yeah, I mean, German feed-in tariffs built up the Chinese solar industry, yes, right? German consumers absolutely. paid for it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you, Corbin, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there's still... The oil industry is like really, really strong in the U.S. right now. It's booming and it's growing because of shale oil. Like we, we just can't forget that, and that's why it is really important to like keep supporting the frontline communities that are fighting pipelines and like refineries and whatever. Um, and you know, it's also the case in Canada where you know the, the prime minister is coming in and like bailing out a really controversial and unpopular pipeline. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of models to look at abroad as well as. You know, there's like cases of municipalization like within the United States or, you know, we, we need to look more closely at what California is doing and seeing like how that can be applied in other states as well. And I think, yeah, it is really important to just, um, like I said before, meet people where their concerns are at and like use that as mobilizing tool. Use that as a starting point to talk about something, a Green New Deal or, you know, a broader shift. Um, and I think that a, there's been a lot of movement on that in even just like the past year, you know, the climate movement is like massively different now than it was like two years ago. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm also optimistic. Well, on that optimistic note, Adria Lim, Ashley Dawson, Daniel Adana-Cohen, and Theoria Francos, thank you very much. Adria Lim is a Brooklyn-based journalist. Theoria Frankos is a professor of political science at Providence College. Ashley Dawson is a professor of English at CUNY Graduate Center and the College of Staten Island. And Daniel Adana-Cohen is a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production only develops the techniques and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please, make propaganda for us. And please also do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. 